lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 17th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I'm joined in the studio today by Emily Agnello and Dr. Margaret Stratton, aka Meg. Yes. <laughs> um, Emily is a recent graduate from UMass. She received her Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology this month, and she's currently pursuing a PhD at the UMass Medical School. She's originally from Schenectady, New York. Dr. Meg Stratton is an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. She received her PhD from SUNY Upstate Medical University, followed by a postdoc at UC Berkeley, and she's originally from Wakefield, Massachusetts. Thanks for coming on the show, Meg and Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Joining as my co-host today is comedian Laura Patrick, who is a founding member of the improv group The Ha Ha's, based out of Northampton. Yes. And she also hosts a monthly comedy quiz show on The Bill Newman Show on WHMP. Yes. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, to start out, maybe Emily, you could tell us a little bit about the research you did in the Stratton Lab? Sure. Um, so I joined the Stratton Lab my sophomore year um, as a biochem major. And, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to research, but I figured I'd give it a try. <laughs> and it turned out really well. <laughs> um, so... The Stratton Lab focuses on a protein called CAMK2, or calcium commodulin protein kinase 2. Um, and so my project was focused on that protein and a particular section of that protein that adds phosphate groups to other proteins um, in the neuron. Um, so basically my project was figuring out how that part of the CAMK2 protein interacted with other proteins. Um, so in a neuron, in order to form memories, which is what our pursuit is, um, figuring out how to form and maintain memories, um, proteins need to interact um, in very specific ways in order to create those memories. Um, and so understanding how those proteins are interacting and with different affinities is really important. Um, so that was kind of what the focus of my project was. Okay. <laughs> so. I did that too in school, just so you know. <clears throat> so the KMK2. Yes. That's the protein. <laughs> yeah, well, but we can back up a little. <laughs> Picture it on our shirts. Yeah. Okay, so it kind of looks like a flower. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. A donut flower. Yeah, a donut okay. flower. So You're this right. is a crucial protein for forming memories. Yeah. Okay, and so how do you, what's what's the process like of, of studying this protein? Like, what's the first step if you're going to start to look at it? <laughs> um, so the first step in my project um, was looking at how how tightly two proteins interact with each other. Um, and so I use a technique called fluorescence polarization. And so the idea behind that is that we shine light on these proteins um, and the light goes through a filter that polarizes it, which just means it's directional, so parallel and perpendicular. Um, and depending on the size of the protein, that light either remains directional or gets scattered. Um, and so by combining these two proteins and looking at how scattered or polarized the light remains, um, we can actually extrapolate how tightly those two proteins are interacting. Okay. Um, and so that was kind of the first part of the project. Um, and then also to see what that interaction looks like, um, 
uh, we're trying, or <laughs> the rest of the project <laughs> will be trying to do something called crystallography, um, which is just getting the proteins to align in a very tightly structured crystal structure, so just kind of like a lattice, um, and then bouncing light off of that in order to determine what the protein actually looks like on a molecular level. Okay. So, so I, I was just wondering, what are you looking at the protein in? Is this my blood? Is this my oh, yeah. brain? Um, so it's just in a, in a buffer, so um, mostly water and then some other chemicals to make sure that the protein stays stable. Um, and, but you've removed the protein from a human. Oh, so we remove it from bacteria. So we have the human <laughs> DNA. So in humans, our DNA codes for these proteins or makes tells our body to make these proteins. Um, and so we can use the exact DNA that our body would make, but we can actually take that DNA and stick it into bacteria and then tell the bacteria, okay, now take this DNA and make a bunch of proteins for us. And then we kill the bacteria and pull out the protein. Oh, great. So <laughs> that way you don't have to keep taking my brain matters exactly to look at your protein good i'm gonna take my hands down from my head because i felt like i needed to protect my brain for a minute but now that i know you're good um yeah no sure you can have a slice of my brain i won't miss it <laughs> so wow so you use the bacteria to produce the protein exactly so they're little like protein making factories yeah. exactly basically. Interesting. yeah it's really great <laughs> liters and liters of them okay. yeah <laughs> you need a lot of bacteria to get enough protein but and the bacteria doesn't hurt the protein in any way or nope huh. nope they right. just make it for us Okay, so then you're looking at how closely intertwined the proteins are? Yeah, essentially. Okay, so what, what does that mean? Like, what's the importance of how intertwined they are? Is it just, like, to find out how close they are? Like, yeah. if they know each other really well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, CAMK2 interacts with different proteins. It's not, like, just has one protein that it interacts with. It interacts with a plethora of proteins. Um, and so I look at one of them in particular, um, but comparing how this protein interacts with CAMK2 um, and then how it acts with, interacts with other proteins um, can tell us, you know, uh, which of these interactions maybe are more essential or um, maybe how long these interactions are happening. You know, if they interact really tightly, um, then it, it may be a more persistent interaction. Okay. Um, and one of the big things about KMK2, about why it's so cool, is because um, it needs to stay active for a long time. Because in order to form memories, you need to be able to pass on information for decades, you know, for your whole lifetime. Um, and so looking at how long and how tightly proteins interact with KMK2 helps us understand how KMK2 can stay active for so long and can continue to pass on information, um, even though proteins fall apart after some time, how KMK2 can continue to pass on information so that we can maintain those memories for years and years. Okay. So, so we might have the same KMK2 proteins in our body at 70 that we had at 2? So it's not the same KMK2 proteins, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they do pass on that information, um, as in they pass on an active state um, so that the pathways that allow those memories to be maintained can continue to occur after KMK2 dies. You know, you always have some version of KMK2 in your body, um, but after the first like round of KMK2 falls apart, 
you need to be able to tell the new batch of KMK2 what to do. Hmm. Yeah, oh. so we, we like to ask the question, you know, how do you maintain memories for the course of, of a lifetime when the components in our cells and our neurons are degraded much faster than that? So hmm. in a healthy, normal cell, you have uh, you're making proteins from the DNA, and those proteins are degraded or destroyed after some period of time, depending on the protein. This could be seconds to minutes to hours to days to weeks, um, potentially months is the longest that's been recorded to this point. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly making everything fresh so that everything's new and not damaged. Um, and so the question is, how do you remember things for years and years when everything's always new? Yeah, it's getting passed down. Right. Is that mm -hmm. why the story changes a little bit? Yeah. About, about <laughs> the size of the fish that I caught? <laughs> Every exactly. time I get some new proteins, it's at least two inches bigger. <laughs> you know, walked miles with no shoes on, that kind of thing. Yeah. Miles. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. So the memories are getting shipped into new proteins or drifting down into new proteins. And they only last a few months. Yes, yeah, and most, most signaling proteins, so these proteins that are talking to each other all the time, um, are degraded on a scale, time scale that's much faster than that, probably minutes to hours. So it's, this is kind of a long-standing question in neuroscience. How do you, how do you keep a memory, um, especially at the molecular level? Uh -huh. So talk, thinking about the proteins in particular. And how, in your testing, are you measuring the memory retention, so to speak? Yeah, so we are protein biochemists, so we, we don't, uh, you know, we pretty much stick with, as Emily was saying, you know, in test tubes using buffer, we're not really looking in animals at the moment. Um, but what we do is we read the literature, we, we figure out what proteins people have found in animals and humans to be very important to memory. Um, either from mutagenesis, so making mistakes in the proteins and seeing what, what happens. You know, do you make, mm -hmm. if you make a mistake in one protein, do you see a mouse that is very forgetful? Um, mm -hmm. So that's the case with CAMK2, for instance. You make one mutation in an essential part of the protein, and you get a mouse that can't remember how to do the maze. Oh. And so we know that that protein is important to memory. And so now we can take that protein out of the cell and actually look at it in a simplified environment in a test tube and figure out, you know, what, what about this protein could be contributing to that process. And so we, we kind of do it piecemeal, yeah. where we look at proteins one at a time and look at how they're interacting with each other. And then we try to put it back into the cell or into the neuron and see if what we thought was true. Huh. Wow. Uh, are you sure the mouse didn't forget the maze because he's just a forgetful mouse? <laughs> how do you, I guess you do a lot of testing and retesting and testing and retesting, and that's right. how science is done. Right. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of replicates. Mm. But it is, it's pretty amazing, actually. You can compare you know, a normal wild-type mouse with no mutations, no mistakes, and that mouse will, will learn a task you know, in five days, learn it really well. And then you take the same exact mouse with one single mistake and one single protein, and you and they don't remember the same task. It's pretty mm. incredible. Wow. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of burden on that protein. Indeed. It's carrying a lot of um, importance. Yes, yes. We think so. <laughs> That's why it's our favorite protein. <laughs> so I'm going to start blaming chem-K2. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Yeah. I think that's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> so is CAMK2 present in like 
all animal brains or is that like obviously mouse and human so mammals right. maybe but yep. yeah so CAMK2 or versions of it exist way far back in evolution um, and and es essentially what we see is that the emergence of the neuron actually coincides with the emergence of the CAMK2 that pretty much we see in humans. Oh, and so it's really okay. been around for, for quite some time, and versions of it exist in lower organisms as well. It's just slightly modified. How low? Um, so we see it down to quinoflagellates, which are single-celled organisms. Oh, wow. Um, oh, I thought that was a boy band. Coanoflagellates. Yes, so they are uh, water creatures, um, single-celled organisms, and we see something that um, is very similar to the Camp K2 that we have in humans, with oh. a few few differences that are probably are definitely crucial to its function. Um, but certainly, it's it's been in existence for quite some time. Hmm. So, single-cell organisms have memory too, then, or is that so, kind no. of too much of a so. stretch? <laughs> So in those organisms, it's probably doing something different. Oh. Um, so it's, as Emily was saying, the, the main function of CAM kinase or CAMK2 is to transfer a phosphate group, um, which is just a, a molecule of, of phosphate, onto, um, onto something else. So it takes phosphate actually from ATP, which is, I always like to bring this back, you know, everyone learned in high school biology mm -hmm. that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Yeah, the mighty um, mitochondria. <laughs> so it's the mighty mitochondria because it makes, it generates all this ATP, which is an energy source. Okay. And so CAMP-K2 and other kinases will take ATP and remove one of the phosphate groups from ATP and put it onto something else. And this is like telling your friend something. This is a message. So this okay. is how proteins can communicate with one another by sharing these chemical modifications. Wow. So that's the main function of the kinase. And so in, um, in the single-celled organisms where you see CAMK2, it's probably doing some signaling um, in other pathways that are, of course, not related to memory. Because, okay. <laughs> I mean, CAMK2 isn't just found in the brain, even that's in right. humans. It's uh. found throughout the body, really, um, you know, in, in slightly different versions. but. Uh, you know, its job is to pass on this information, and obviously that's very crucial for memory, but there are other functions in our body that um, information needs to be passed down for. Huh. Is it responsible for muscle memory? Like, you don't want to pick up that couch because the last time you did, <laughs> it really hurt. <laughs> I don't know. When you say it's in other parts of the body, what's it reminding me of? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'm not totally sure about that particular <laughs> example, <laughs> but it's found, um, as Emily said, in nearly every cell in the body, and it plays a major role mm. in the heart as oh. well. So it's it's um, it really plays a major role wherever you see calcium playing a major role because calcium is is what turns on CAMK2. So CAMK2 mm -hmm. is is off; it's not doing anything. It's just hanging around waiting until the calcium signal comes in. And then CAMK2 turns on, and then that starts its phosphor, phosphotransfer activity. And so it's doing this in the brain, it's doing it in the heart. Um, it also plays a major role in fertilization, which we recently started looking into, uh, which is really interesting. So CAMK2 is found in eggs, it's also found in sperm. Wow. And if you delete it in either of those cases, you have a sterile 
um, animal. Oh, it's a oh. very powerful protein. Very yeah. important. Yeah. Sounds oh. like it could be one of the Marvel Avengers. Cam <laughs> <laughs> <Camp> K2. <laughs> I can see it now. It's going to have a red mask. We need to add a cape onto our yeah. animation. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so if it has to do with calcium, as you know, as we know, when people age, their memory is affected mm -hmm. and also, I assume there's there's some calcium. Um, or I don't know if your you your calcium is lowered when you're yeah. aged. I know there's mm -hmm. something happens. Is there a connection there? Do you think with memory and? Yeah, that's a good question. So certainly, you know, we you hear about this a lot, especially with bone. You know, you have yeah. um, osteoporosis, which is kind of a result of this this calcium decrease, but. As far as aging and memory, I'm not totally sure that calcium is actually the culprit. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more when you age, um, a lot of things kind of happen that are not quite pristine as they once were. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as I was saying before, we have to constantly make and degrade things on a, on a very strict time scale. And so some of those processes are certainly affected with aging, mm. um, as well as just general cell processing. Yeah, you can blame a lot of things, I think. <laughs> I'm curious, so you said that when they put the mutation in the KMK2 for mice, they have a bad memory, but do they have other effects like that they've observed in that same mouse? I don't know, probably right. more than no, one Right, that's mouse. a good question. So in humans, there are four genes, four separate genes that encode KMK2. And so in these mice, they only made that mutation in one of them. Oh. So the KMK2s that are important in fertility, for example, weren't affected. Oh. Actually, if you do that, then you you know get new mice because they can't oh. uh, <laughs> they can't procreate. <laughs> um, so in those those mice where they made the mutation in just one of the genes, one of the major ones found in the brain, um, the major effect was the memory phenotype. Um, but they also had some some other effects um, that were more minor that they noted. Okay, so. Like an inability to mouse dance, or what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you need Man, to remember be, things to dance. <laughs> that that's would be true. a whole mutation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they tested mouse dancing uh, particularly, but they should have. They should have. That's <laughs> uh, something I want to see. That's making me think of like the horse dancing. What's it called? You oh, know? you mean the um, the fancy horse, yeah. the equestrian sport oh, where they yeah. do the stepping? Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. I call that. I can't remember what it's called. Crazy. I'm going to blame my KMK too. Way to spend yeah. your time. <laughs> Make my horse It'd be high even step. better if you did that with mice. <laughs> I'd be more impressed, I think. I know. That would be really funny. If you could find a way to make mice dance, and you could find a way to make humans dance, <laughs> and then if we can make everyone be able to dance, imagine the world would be a, a, a happier place, I think. I totally agree. Ultimate you know? mind control. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> foot, foot control. <laughs> True. So one thing I noticed when I was perusing your, you have a really great website for your lab, the Stratton Lab. You can thank lab. Emily for that. She's <laughs> a mastermind behind that. And one thing that stands out is that you have a lot of people working in your lab, and there's pictures of all of them, and they're all doing handstands. <laughs> or some <laughs> version of a handstand. Or a version of a handstand. Some are maybe cheated attempt. where they're just putting their hands up, and then you flip the picture upside down. Oh, you noticed that? <laughs> I did. I picked up on that. I'm very perceptive like that. <laughs> But I was just curious, like, what's going on with that? 
Yeah, so this was an idea that I had during my, my postdoc work. I started doing CrossFit when I was out oh. in California. And I would do, you know, I'd have some downtime in between experiments and maybe go do some handstands against the wall in the hallway. <laughs> get the blood flowing to the get, brain. Get some other people to come do it with me. And so everyone was joking when I got the job to come here that, um, I was going to make everybody do handstands, and then I decided, I'm actually going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and some poor biochemistry student is yeah, like, this exactly. is not what I signed <laughs> up for. Actually, the first uh, meeting <laughs> we had, this is like my first time meeting everyone in the Stratton lab, Meg was like, all right, so you're going to do a handstand. <laughs> and at this point, my arm strength was um, not impressive. <laughs> I, I went to go flip up against the wall to do a handstand, and my arms just crumpled. <laughs> my head smacked right on the ground. Yeah. That was my first interaction with the Stratton Lab. So. Yeah. Wow. And after that, I made everybody sign a waiver. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's almost like a hazing ritual. <laughs> like, right. if you want to work in the Strand Lab, well, you're going to first Being do. in charge of the website, <laughs> it's my job to get those pictures from oh, people. Okay. And so I'd go up to someone in the lab and, like, do you want to do a handstand today? <laughs> and you're a little bit more flexible on it. A little and bit, yeah. Feel like yeah. Slightly yeah. trickier. Other poses I are that. acceptable. Okay. <laughs> now, I guess. Now. <laughs> So this doesn't have something to do with KMK2 standing on its head or memory or anything like that. Just kind of no. a fun <laughs> So I assumed there was some more like scientific. Purpose. Yeah, I was wondering yeah, if it helps Cam K two production to yeah. stand on your head and have the blood flow to your brain. It does, does it help my memory? There. I don't. I don't know that anyone's shown it's helpful for brain function, but that it, doesn't mean it doesn't. Yeah, help. that's true. <laughs> I think we should just start telling people that. I, I was going to say. I think that that could be you know part of your you know reporting. Yeah, By the exactly. way, we discovered headstands. <laughs> Great for the brain, <laughs> except when your arms collapse and you get a concussion. Yeah. Right, <laughs> then not so not great. So <laughs> Opposite effect. Yeah. yeah. So I could talk a little yeah. bit about um, some other projects. So, okay. so Cam K two, um, you know, the main reason that we're looking at this is that it's it's been shown to be really important in memory function, um, and interestingly, you know, there are some things about Cam K two that make it clear it's playing a really important role there. One of this is that it's the most concentrated enzyme in the part of brain cells that are playing a major role with neuronal communication, so cell-to-cell -cell communication. And if you, if you think about memory at its simplest form, um, the way I like to describe it is that, you know, one neuron talks to the next neuron and the strength of that communication basically dictates um, that, that cell cellular memory. And so this can be kind of trans transferred to thinking about higher order memory. Um, whether this is actually factual, I think remains to be seen, but at least from some really fancy experiments that have been done, not in my lab, in other people's labs, if you actually stimulate um, a pathway of cells, you can recapitulate um, a behavior in an animal. Mm. And so this kind of tells us that actually the strength of these cell-to-cell -cell communications is really related to memory. Okay. Um, and so CAMK2 is the most concentrated enzyme at the part of the cell that's receiving this information. Oh. And so that's quite interesting. 
And so if you actually look at a plate of neurons and you stimulate them, you see that all the CAMK2 is transferred to this site. And so you know that it's playing a major role there and playing a major role signaling um, around that area. And so we're, as Emily was saying, we're really interested in knowing what else is CAMK2 interacting with? What does that do to its function and, um, and its, its behavior? And also, what does it look like when it's binding to these other proteins? So can we understand its function better by actually looking at what it's doing? So seeing a picture of the protein, for example. Um, and one thing that, that's pretty exciting is this idea uh, called subunit exchange, which is something I was working on during my postdoc work. And basically, there's this longstanding question of how do you retain memories in the face of protein degradation or, or destroying these proteins? And Francis Crick, who was one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, um, postulated that perhaps this is the job of a protein that is more than one subunit, and this protein would actually share information with the new protein that's made. So we have protein hanging around, that protein is destroyed, we make new protein. And so maybe during the pro that process, there's actually some communication between the old protein and the new protein that's made. Mm. So um, people knew that KMK2 is really important in memory, and so, so they thought maybe this is a really good candidate for this mechanism. So in my postdoc, what I did was to ask this question, does KMK2 talk to other KMK2s? Um, and so if you picture KMK2 as a flower, um, you know, you see d different petals, essentially, and those petals are, are identical units. So each petal is identical to the next, um, but they can kind of move around freely. Mm. And so the question was, does one petal from one protein go into another flower, <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> essentially? Oh. So do they mix? The whole petal? Yeah, like, the whole oh, petal. Okay. So like between two flowers, can you basically switch the petals? Wow. So we call this subunit exchange because each component of the protein we call a subunit. And essentially that's that's what I found. So these petals, these subunits do exchange with each other. Oh wow. And so if you take, you know, one uh, one group of flowers that are red and one group that are green and you mix them together, you essentially see yellow. So you see uh, red and green in one flower. Wow. And so these subunits are mixing and they seem to be sharing information. And so this is kind of um, one solution to this problem of how do you get the information to the new generation of, of proteins? Maybe it's through this subunit exchange phenomenon. Okay. And so we're continuing to ask questions about that as well. Now, so why wouldn't the subunit be degrading the one that goes into the new protein? Wouldn't the degradation affect the new protein of that subunit? Right, so it's all about time scales. Uh -huh. So, you know, basically once a protein is made, it's kind of on a clock. You know, this is how long this protein is gonna last, or, you know, if something bad happens to that protein, the cell identifies this and kills it. Um, and so it's, it's kind of always on a clock. Mm. And people have shown that CAMK2 itself, uh, one. Uh, one CAMK2 molecule will hang around in the cell for a pretty significant period of time on the order of weeks. So that's long enough that you could make the protein, activate it, make new protein, yeah. have this transfer event before it gets killed off, essentially. Wow. Wow. <laughs>
That's really interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, so the new proteins are incorporating a small part of the old proteins, that's and right. that's how they're maybe exchanging information. Right. Wow. And you were talking about how when the, the neuron is stimulated, there's a part in the and the CAMK2 rushes to that area. Right. But I I have a question. When are we not having our neurons stimulated? Right. I mean, so yes. my memory isn't only on when something important is happening mm -hmm. or something dramatic is happening. Right? right. Every single second, I'm right. I'm gathering information. So, right. is it a constant stream of chem K two rushing to the totally coffee bar there? Yep. Get sure a drink. Is. Okay. Yeah. Chem K two is a busy beaver. <laughs> um, and you know if you. If you picture a neuron, it's like kind of this long uh, stick <laughs> is the, the center of the neuron. So we call this a dendrite. And off of that stick are tiny little sticks emerging from there. So it's like the tree trunk and then the branches kind of. Um, and so these branches are, are constantly forming, uh, forming and then retracting, forming and retracting. And so your brain is this constant flow of information and, and activity. And so all these things are kind of happening all the time, but only where you have persistent signaling, persistent calcium, persistent um, activation, do you actually maintain that connection or do oh. you maintain that branch formation? And so does that signaling happen like when you're thinking about that memory actively? Yes, or, okay. right, or when you're, you know, in, in mouse experiments, which is kind of best understood, yeah. um, you know, you can trigger that through, um, through a test. You know, you can, my, mice are really good at taking tests, especially <laughs> when they know there's a reward. Oh. Um, and so they'll, you know, watch for a light or figure out what the, the challenge is if they know they're gonna get some sort of treat, like sugar or something oh. like that, yeah. Huh. Why didn't they just give me cupcakes after <laughs> the SATs? I, I know, would have done right? much better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah seriously. <laughs> I was just thinking that same thing. I'm like, I need to start eating more candy after I do my work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will help. <laughs> I've gotten really into gummy vitamins <laughs> lately. Yeah. Because yes. uh, like, I'll totally remember to take my vitamins like three, four times a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I went to CVS the other day and they had like buy one, get one free. So yes. I bought all different new ones like calcium and vitamin D. And I got like a whole <laughs> range of gummy vitamins. And I was like, I should get one of those like organizers. <laughs> <for your laughs> pills, it'll just be full of gummies. <laughs> for your candy. Oh and then I might not eat like. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Dr. Meg Stratton and Emily Agnello from the Stratton Lab in the biochemistry department at UMass Amherst. And my co-host today is comedian Laura Patrick, who is a founding member of the local improv group The Ha Ha's. Jumping right back into it. There was something you said, oh, um, about so the, the stimulation of those neurons and how you could get animals to do a certain thing by activating a certain neuron. Could you maybe expand on that? Yeah, sure. So um, again, these aren't experiments that we do, but mm -hmm. to um, you can essentially hijack cells by um, forcing them to express a protein that you can stimulate with light. Oh. So you um, put this protein in neurons, and when you hit it with light, you can turn on those neurons. Wow. And so ex experimentalists have figured out how to do this specifically. Um, and what they did was to um, have a mouse perform a task, and then they figured out which neurons were involved in learning that task. And then they selectively expressed 
these activated proteins, photoactivatable proteins in those cells. And then without telling the mouse what to do, they just turned on those neurons using light and the mouse did the task. Wow. This sounds scary. (laughs) That's so super creepy. I'm thinking of like the Manchurian Candidate. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Um, But like, yeah, it's like you're basically mind controlling the mouse, right? That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Are you doing it to me right now? I just want to know. Kim K2 is your favorite protein. (laughs) God, Kim K2 is fantastic. Everyone should donate to the Stratton Lab. You know, what I haven't done lately is donate to the Stratton Lab. Because Dr. Professor Meg says so. That's S-T-R-G. Uh-oh, I can't remember how to spell Stratton. You better get me some Cam K2 in my protein drink. No problem. Can we actually, maybe maybe that's what we need to do, is find a way to get more Cam K2 into yeah. people that are losing their memory, like me. I know. Cam K2 gummies, maybe? Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's tie it in. I know. Yeah, people have... Um, thought about this, of course. So you can, you know, make a mutation to hurt CAMK2. You can also mm-hmm. make a mutation to keep CAMK2 on all the time. So when you mm-hmm. make that mutation in mice, unfortunately, it doesn't lead to super mice. Uh, <laughs> so what happens? Brains <laughs> explode. What yeah. happens? Yeah, kind of. They're really overstimulated, yeah. and, and uh, lots of lots yeah. of bad things happen. Unfortunately. So is there any possibility that there are humans with uh, overactive ChemK2 production, or hmm. that that could be resulting in some behavioral? hyperactivity or right definitely so people find um and this is really well known in the heart that when you um when you have some sort of heart incident like a period of ischemia or something a lot of things get damaged camp k2 when it's oxidized it will um become too active actually and this this has been linked specifically to uh, arrhythmias and so that's a major problem there and so Uh people are um trying to find specific drugs to treat CAMP-K2 in the heart, for instance. Um, but in the brain, it's a little more, everything's a little more complicated. And so it's hard to really nail down what, um, what phenotypes are associated with which proteins. It's like, for instance, Alzheimer's is, you know, lots and lots of proteins are implicated in this disease, um, as well as just general brain morphology, these plaques that people talk about all the time. So there's so many kind of uh, different things that are going on, it's really hard to figure out what's actually the culprit mm. there. Mm. Um, and so CAMK2 has been implicated in Alzheimer's, but it's unclear at which phase of the disease or if it's causative or if it's some reaction to something else. Mm. So. so a lot of people are studying uh, this yes. protein as well. And, yes. and you've been studying it since your postdoc right. work and continue to study it. Right. Um, do you feel like it could be a life with Chem K2? You're making a life with Chem oh, yeah. K2? Yeah, never, <laughs> never leaving it. Oh, <laughs> she has a crush on a protein. <laughs> I tell people that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Professor, I see the light in your eye for a little Chem K2. It's the best relationship I've ever been. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, it just got sad in here. <laughs> I'm kidding. I am. I am kidding because she's really, she's fabulous, Dr. <laughs> Professor Meg and her Stratton lab. 
Cam K two. That makes me think about but the the concept of the overactive Cam K two reminds me of an article I read about kind of the ben- benefit of forgetting things that you can't really remember everything and there's you know you would be anxious all the time if you remembered everything if you were alert to all the things that could be going on around you that you have you wouldn't be able to focus like what dr shotton was saying about how those um those sticks coming off those dendrite dendritic spines that um communicate information you know you would think that oh in order to have more memories we'll just always be creating those sticks you know always Mm -hmm. be creating those interactions, but um, like she was saying, they're made, but they're also pruned back. You know, if you Uh. have too many of those connections, your brain just wouldn't be able to handle it. And so same thing with like, oh, if you don't have enough KMK2, like, can't you just add more? You know, but everything in the brain and throughout the body is so highly regulated and has to happen in such a specific time scale and and everything like that, that, um, you know, there's no simple solution to just add more or have more of mm. something that's that's not always the solution. Yeah. Who's doing the dendrite pruning? Is, is that a landscaping service? Who <laughs> <laughs> makes that decision? And I was like, yeah, you've got too many. I'm going to prune there's that There's little back. guys in your brain that yeah. come in with a chainsaw. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They've got lights on their hats. Too. <laughs> little miners. Little dendrite miners. <laughs> Well, obviously, memory, of course, is imperative in our uh, continued existence, mm-hmm. right? For us and all other all kinds of beings, because if we didn't remember that which was going to kill us, uh, we would be um, annihilated. Um, but um, you said that ChemK2 is also in other genes. Can you just go back to that? I just was interested mm-hmm. by that. So there was, you mentioned the st- sterile, the sterility, yes, and, and, and right. where else is this protein? It's, I feel very ChemK2 <laughs> heavy right now. And <laughs> I just want to know what it's running. Yeah, so there's, there are four different genes in, in every, every cell. And so it seems that in, in specific cells, there's um, specific genes expressed. And so um, in the brain, we have alpha and beta KMK2 that are heavily expressed, although all four proteins are seen there. So we have alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. So KMK2 delta is found in the heart specifically, Uh and then KMK2 gamma is found in the reproductive organs, so in eggs and in sperm. Um, And some seems like KMK2 gamma is really found throughout the body. So it's really, yeah, you are, everyone is Camp K2 heavy. I'm thinking of them as like little frats for the yeah. different I was going to say. <laughs> they're all Greek what's, oh, the yeah. ha- <laughs> what's the hazing process for the Camp K2 gamma delta beta? Um, how come we're not all talking about Camp K2? I feel like this shouldn't be no. the first yeah. day I've heard of this yeah, little, heard the little guy because yeah. it's a very important, vital. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, Tell all your friends. I <laughs> and no, it's so I pretty. Won't. It's very pretty, and <laughs> yeah. it does look like a flower. Right. And now I understand that with the petals. Right. I'm looking. You're, this is radio. Why I can't <laughs> say things are pretty. The uh, doctor professor and her star people are wearing Stratton Lab T-shirts, which actually have a drawing of a Cam K2 on it. Yeah. With the individual sort of petals, which now make a lot of sense. I was yeah. like, you guys, you can, you just, they made a snowflake, huh? That's all you can do is get a snowflake from the, from the printing store. But now I understand it actually is supposed to look like that on purpose. Right. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. For the subunit. See, I learned yeah, something. Right, yeah, subunit. Right, right. Mm-hmm. 
So I feel like now that I understand what KMK2 is kind of, um, I want to come back to what Emily started talking about. <laughs> yeah. about you. So you were using fluorescence to look at how the proteins are intertwining with each other. Right. So what kind of... Did you find out anything or like what kind of stuff did you see? Yeah. Um, so using that technique, I was able to uh, calculate a dissociation constant, okay. um, which can be compared, you know, across different binding proteins that interact with KMK2. Okay. Um, and so I determined it um, um, pretty solidly for, for one protein so far. So the protein that I was looking at um, is called TM1 um, and it gets phosphorylated by KMK2. Uh, and we know that TM1 is also really important for long-term memory and processes involved with long-term memory. Um, so similarly, if you um, get rid of the TM1 gene in mice, um, the amount of dendritic spines, or those branches that we were referring to, um, decreases by quite a lot. Um, and without those spines being there when they're supposed to be, then you can't communicate that information, and then you get a, a mouse without a very good memory. Oh. <laughs> um, and so... I determined the dissociation constant between TM1 and KMK2, uh, and then I was also using fluorescence polarization to determine dissociation constants between KMK2 um, and other proteins or substrates that we know that KMK2 interacts with. Mm -hmm. um, and so that data is still being flushed out a little bit, um, but we do have some, some preliminary data for those other um, substrates. And then what I was talking about before with the crystallography and getting an actual image of what that interaction looks like, that was also TM1. Um, and so the reason that we're interested in interaction between KMK2 and TM1 is, um, you know, we have a collaborator in Japan who also looks at KMK2 and lots of proteins that are involved in memory. Um, and he found that TM1 actually helps persist the activity of KMK2. So mm -hmm. like I was saying before, um, one of the main functions of KMK2 is to keep it on, you know, to keep KMK2 on to continue to pass on information through the pathways that KMK2 is involved in. And so there are many ways that KMK2 does this, one of them being subunit exchange, another of them being proteins like TAM1 who bind to a certain part of KMK2 and kind of wedge it open and keep it on mm. so that while it's bound, KMK2 stays activated and can actually while TM1 is bound, go on and phosphorylate other proteins. Um, and so since KMK2 is a kinase, its main job is to phosphorylate other proteins, um, but it needs to stay on to do that. So we know that TM1 plays a role um, in keeping KMK2 on so that it can do that. And, um, you know, kind of the question that arose from that is, are there other proteins that also do this? You know, are there other proteins that bind and keep KMK2 active so that it can phosphorylate other proteins? Um, so getting a, a crystal structure and, and knowing what that looks like would be really interesting because, um, you know, there's a good chance that if there are other proteins that do a similar job as TM1, it probably looks pretty similar to TM1. Um, and there is no full-length crystal structure of TM1 because it is a little bit of a beast to work with. Um, so I work with a small part of it. But um. knowing what that interaction looks like would help us look at other proteins that maybe have a similar structure or, you know, help us kind of flush out what other proteins may play a similar role. Wow. So what do you mean by it's a beast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's big and <laughs> not particularly stable. Um, uh. You know, the, the bigger a protein is, the harder it is to work with since we do kind of 
stick our proteins into bacteria if it's really big and unruly. Bacteria don't really like that. <laughs> they can't handle it. Yeah, they can't handle it. And, um, you know, if proteins are more unstable, then at lower temperatures, they tend to denature. And once a protein's denatured, it's really hard to, to work with it or find out any experimental data with it. So. Oh. I've worked with some denatured folk. Yeah, <laughs> they're very too fun. <laughs> yeah, no, they're all over the place. Yeah. They could use some pruning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll send the mem memory miners over yeah. there. <laughs> clip, clip. <laughs> it really sounds like a social network of proteins. Like, it, it like really the, is. the TM1 are just coming in and bolstering the KMK2. Right. Like their buddies, totally. like yep. they get along well. Right, mm. yeah. I think, I think it's, yeah. you know, from a non-science perspective, it's easy to think about um, not just in memory, but all the pathways in the body is very linear things you know one thing leads to the next leads to the next and then something happens you know you move your arm or your body tells your body to do something um but that's just not true i mean it's not linear at all the kmk2 is interacting with tens and tens and i don't know maybe even hundreds of proteins um all at once and then those proteins interact with a bunch of other proteins and you know, it's just this tangled web of interactions that allows us to function. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. If you Google uh, a picture of what it looks like inside the cell, it's this packed, super packed. It's like you're at a nightclub that's <laughs> sold out. Really? I mean, it's nuts. And so you see all of these, all of these different proteins and other molecules literally shoulder to shoulder. And it's amazing to think about how everything can still happen the way it should it's yeah. it's really incredible mm, and wow. it's all driven by um what emily was talking about with dissociation constants so this is you know how tightly does does one thing like another thing how much mm -hmm. does it like mm -hmm. it how much are they going to stay together how often are they going to find each other this is all you know what happens in the nightclub too you lose your <laughs> friends <laughs> the better friends you are you know you won't leave without them right. kind of thing <laughs> right Right. How do they find each other? I mean, how does a Chem K2 find what it's, you know, where it's going and its friend TM1, <laughs> which stands for Something tiny really long. mouse yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tissue matter? T lymphoma and metastasis factor one. Wow. If you were wondering. <laughs> what she said. <laughs> You can see why I got abbreviated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little bit of um, a mouthful. But yeah, to that respect, I mean, with these influxes of calcium or these signaling pathways, you know, that is kind of how they find each other. I don't think there's really a start and end point. It's just, yeah. you know, the DNA are our directions and we get these proteins and if they're made correctly, they know exactly what to do and that's what allows them to find each other and um, with that influx, like Meg was saying, um, when that happens, they all get shuttled to this one particular part of the neuron while they're all, all packed very densely. And okay, I'm just sure. curious, do you know any other proteins? Um, I've met a couple of proteins <laughs> along the way. Um, there was one named Dolly. And um, no, I've never <laughs> met a protein. I don't know any other proteins. I, I've had a protein drink this yeah. morning. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. I don't know what was in it because yeah. I'm just an idiot consumer. <laughs> it's like, 
oh, 11 grams of protein. That sounds good. I really don't know if it is. It's probably too much. I probably don't need it. It doesn't matter. It tasted like cookies and cream. So can you listeners tell who's not the scientist on this panel? I actually have a kind of a funny story about that. Um, uh, Meg and I work on the, these BuzzFeed posts to kind of help simplify science and, and convey scientific ideas to the general public. And for one of them, we were planning on writing about uh, proteins. And we we're like, okay, well, what proteins do people know or what proteins are really interesting that would get people interested? And so I was sitting, you know, in my dorm here at UMass, and I <laughs> looked over at my roommate. Um, who was a bio major, so she should know some some protein names. <laughs> I feel like we're being set up. And I was like, hey, with what's her. your favorite protein? And she was like, um, I guess chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I love your roommate. <laughs> Although I would have said eggs. But still, I that's feel like about it's a pretty it. reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I get uh, salmon a lot. Too. Obviously, yeah. the general public yeah. is not learning enough about proteins right. either. Right. So yeah. maybe there should be some marketing here, Doctor well, Professor Meg. Yes, we are. We're working on it. So as Emily mentioned, we started this whole BuzzFeed idea um, where, because I get this all the time from my friends who are like, you know, what is your job? What, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> all, at all hours, yeah. you know, all the time. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like, well, basically I'm moving one colorless liquid from one tube to another tube. That's <laughs> essentially what it, lo it looks like. Also known as vodka shot <laughs> night. <laughs> And so, you know, I started telling some of my non-science friends about what I'm actually doing and drawing pictures for them and trying to describe it in, in easy to understand ways. And, and they're all super interested. And I, I find that a lot. You know, people want to know about science, but they don't know where to find the information. It's complicated. And we use a lot of jargon. I mean, how can you understand this? It's impossible. I've barely understood anything <laughs> that's happened. No, I'm kidding. No, you're right. It is interesting. It's, and we yeah. don't have access to it. Right. It. Right. And, and so there's a divide between your world and our world. Right. It would be great for there to be a bridge for some right. of us right. idiots to right. come on over and learn something. <laughs> Maybe a radio show. Yeah. Oh. I was <laughs> just, just going to do a shout out to Laura for this whole thing, yeah. which, which is awesome. And, you know, a, a great place to, to share information and to try to get the word out that scientists are not all nuts and doing <laughs> crazy things in the lab that are scary. Um, but in fact, it's all super cool and, and way better than any, you know, science fiction book you could read. <laughs> the, re the reality is much cooler. Um, and so these BuzzFeed posts that um, were actually an idea that uh, we came up with as part of an NSF grant I was putting in. Um, so NSF likes you to have these broader impacts um, section of the grant. So you do something that engages the community which is awesome, and so I thought, what better way to engage the community than to do something with social media or something online? And BuzzFeed has a really nice platform where you can have um, pictures and movies and little GIFs, GIFs, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> um, to describe things. And so we thought, you know, add in a little humor. We're not stand-up comics, but we try. And um, Emily really made the first two completely on her own, and they're awesome. I urge you to go look at them. They're on. You can find them on the Stratton Lab website. And we're, you know, starting from the beginning, starting from genes and what's DNA and how does that work and how do you make proteins? What the heck is a protein? 
Oh um, I'm, go- I'm, go- and- I'm literally going there right <laughs> this second. What's and your website, Stratton Lab website? So it's, if you just Google Stratton Lab, it'll come up. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that, you guys are. That assumes I know yeah. how to do that. <laughs> it's like okay. biochem.sites.strattonlab. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you guys are on Twitter Lab. too? Or? Yes. 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 Okay, then I think we'll move on to the last segment of our show, which is a little game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. (laughs) (laughs) Not go to academia. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, and not Grand Theft Auto. Possibly a more popular game. (laughs) I'm trying to compete, though. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah, Yeah, it's disputable which one's more popular. (laughs) Sure, yours is a close second thousand. Um, and so for this game, um, my guests have provided me with some acronyms from their field, and we're going to have Laura Patrick try to guess what those acronyms Ooh, mean. <laughs> okay, so your first acronym. Yes. GFP. GFP. Gracefully forgetting people. <laughs> That's kind of what happens when you're 55. And your Camcoba, Camcoba. <laughs> oh my God, Camcoba! By the way, is this an amazing ice cream parlor in Mile End in Montreal? It's literally the most gorgeous handmade ice cream. It's called Camcoba in Montreal, and I go there a lot because my cousin lives there. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's not I, obviously my memory just went out the window right there. <laughs> I need some Chem K. To, could we please get? Could you get me a drink with some of that stuff? Yeah, I need sure. some more of those protein yeah. flowers over here. <laughs> what was the acronym? I don't <laughs> so is gracefully forgetting people what GFP stands for? Yeah. Not quite. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Green fluorescent protein. Green. 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 It's green. Oh, it's a protein that's green. Yeah. Or? Actually- Have you ever seen a picture of the like fluorescent green cat? Is this a trick question? <laughs> I don't think so. For the bunny, cat? they can make animals glow. Ah, with this protein? Yeah. yeah. Is this the one that you use to look at the fluorescence of the cam K two? No. It's oh, okay. Not, yeah. So what does what's this protein do? Like, how does it work? It just fluoresces. <laughs> is that, is that yeah, what makes all the fluorescent in the sea? The I was little just beings say, in yeah. the sea. So, that's yeah. right. So, in uh, this protein was originally found in jellyfish, yeah. um, oh. which which use this glowing mechanism in the sea. And um, the scientists who who discovered this won the Nobel Prize several oh. several years ago. Um, and because now they can make that same protein a lot of other colors. So from green fluorescent protein, we also now have red, violet, cyan, yellow. So all the colors of the rainbow, which we can use in experiments to help us track other proteins. Oh, that's so great. It's super cool. So you like bind them together and then they're glowing. So if you want to turn a protein on and you attach it to GFP, then if you see the green fluorescence, you know that protein is on. Oh, wow. Wow, so so it's like a little switch. It's just on and then the light's on. Wow. Yeah, and then you can, it's like a little uh, little marker. So yeah. you can just Check look, it, look in it the cell and you see where it is. And it's pretty cool. Um, can I get, buy some of this stuff at Target? Because <laughs> it sounds like it could be a fun. You know, I bet you, you can order it online. Yeah, okay. You, well, uh-huh. you can definitely order it online for a science lab. But uh-huh. I bet Do you they can ask for credentials? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can, I, can they just be like, Laura Patrick Lab? <laughs> Yeah, I need some of that for Laura Patrick Lab. Um, no, it just sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that's I mean, cool. Huh, okay. Is there another acronym that I can butcher? Uh, oh, yeah, I've got another one for you. So the next one is FRET, 
F-R-E-T. Fret. F-R-E-T. Not um, hmm, to be mistaken with the five regulated egg temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, there, you wouldn't want four. There are right. five, right. and you need them regulated because yeah. you wouldn't want to go off, you know, book on that because eggs that are not the right temperature make you sick that's bad protein ladies and gentlemen that's <laughs> science right there bad <laughs> eggs bad protein okay uh, do you guys want to yeah what jump is in? yes so it stands for forester or fluorescence resonance energy transfer oh is that what you're talking about when you put the fluorescence in no what is so yeah we didn't actually talk about this but fret um allows you to tell whether something's close together or far apart and so we can, using these different colors I was just talking about, so we, we would be able to tell through um, different light imaging whether the green protein was right next to the blue protein or if it was far away. Oh, so hmm. we can kind of track distances either on one protein or on two different proteins. So it kind of allows us like a little ruler, essentially, a molecular mm. ruler. What did scientists do before the fluorescence? Was <laughs> nothing. Oh, right. <laughs> Actually, pr proteins themselves are fluorescent. Oh. So different amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, um, specifically one called tryptophan, um, is fluorescent in and of itself. And so we can actually use the protein fluorescence to to study various things about it. And why would it be fluorescent? What's the what's the need for that? In, in the, I mean, other than for you guys, it's good, yeah. <laughs> but w is there any understanding of why there would be fluorescence internally? And in yeah, so a lot of um, a lot of molecules in the cell are, um, you know, everything's electrons essentially. Right. And so depending on how those electrons are ordered, they naturally have this this absorption of light. Um, and, and of course, this comes from, you know, plants need to absorb light right. for, for energy. Um, and so this is probably from some evolutionary. Yeah, uh, leftover. Yeah. Even yeah. though it might but be inside my body, which is light free, right. but leftover <laughs> right. from a time when yes. I was a tree. Yeah. <laughs> so, but absorbing energy in some way. Huh. So Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Put that on BuzzFeed. The whole yeah. fluorescence <laughs> thing is really, yeah. really yeah, cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a cool acronym because it sounds like a word. Yeah. Fret. <laughs> fret. Do you make jokes about don't that a lot? Fret. You're like, don't fret. They're really close yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be okay. Don't fret, little Kim K2. You'll be all right. Oh, man. See, this is why we need comedians around all the time. <laughs> you can hire me for a small fee to come to your lab. You don't need to do handstands for laughs anymore. <laughs> just bring comedy right Actually to the lab. Trying to come up with puns. So yeah. I think you'd be really handy. Uh, I, I would be. <laughs> I would be. <laughs> Plus, I kill a lab coat, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I kill quite a figure. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily and Meg and Laura. What a pleasure. Thank Thanks you. It's been awesome. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Great. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUI Amherst. My guests today were Emily Agnello and Dr. Meg Stratton from the Stratton Lab in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Departments here at UMass Amherst. My co-host today was comedian Laura Patrick, one of the founding members of the improv group The Ha Ha's. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. You can go ahead and like and subscribe to Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook or SoundCloud or iTunes. 
Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.